0: I'm sure people remember that the Judiciary Committee served as something of a proving ground for Booker, Harris, Klobuchar, all these people who would end up, of course, running for president in 2020. And
1: we saw that again. You know, we're seeing that again now. Yeah, like, is it
0: clear who's running for president from these hearings? We're seeing
1: Ted Cruz and Marsha Blackburn and Josh Hawley. Well, it's like, you could probably say six people are running for president based on these hearings.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Supreme Court nomination hearing edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Judge Kataji Brown-Jackson's hearings mark the fourth Supreme Court nomination hearings we've covered in the six years we've been around as a podcast. The Senate Judiciary Committee and 538 legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe have been very busy. By the way, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. How's it going?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Galen. How are you?
0: Pretty good, pretty good. Um, Been watching the majority of the hearings in the background. So, you know, we'll chat about them. They are wrapping up on Thursday and all indication is that Jackson will be confirmed largely along partisan lines, although perhaps not exclusively, we'll see. She would be the first black woman and first public defender to serve on the court. Since Jackson's confirmation is the expected outcome, the hearings, similar to past ones, took on a largely political significance. I should say for the record that we are recording this at the end of the day on Wednesday, so if anything crazy has happened since then, maybe some caveats apply. But in any case, we're going to talk about how the senators and how Jackson herself approached the hearings, what political messages did senators send, and were we able to glean anything about what kind of justice Jackson would be. So, First, as we suggested, Supreme Court nomination hearings can be exercises in finding ways to not actually answer the questions asked. And that goes for basically all nominees these days. In the grand scheme of things, how forthcoming was Jackson? And were we able to determine anything that we didn't generally know going in?
1: not really she answered the questions sometimes more straightforwardly than other times she talked about her record like it wasn't like she was sitting there in silence saying i plead the fifth i plead the fifth mm-hmm. she she was answering the question she was also being interrupted a lot um, so there were moments when you know she might have said more and and someone talked over her but for the most part it is as you were saying this weird thing in supreme court confirmation hearings and this is by no means unique to jackson that Nominees just don't have much of an incentive to impart a lot of information about their views and especially about their views on controversial issues that could come before the Supreme Court. So, you know, when asked about something like abortion, she'll say something like Roe versus Wade is settled law, which today I guess you could kind of read as as a very telling statement. It didn't used to be. Um, But this isn't really an exercise of trying to get new information about the justice. It's more sort of a political posturing where the senators on both sides are trying to highlight different parts of her record and, and, you know, usually in the case of the opposition, make her out to be kind of a potentially bad force on the Supreme Court.
0: One piece of new information that we did get on Wednesday is that Judge Jackson said she would recuse herself from the affirmative action case involving Harvard University and the University of North Carolina that the Supreme Court is set to hear in its next session. So when she would be on the court, if she's confirmed, is it news that she would recuse herself? Was that expected? And what's the rationale there?
1: I don't know if it was expected necessarily. She's recused herself from past cases involving Harvard because, you know, she went there. She's been involved in sort of various ways as an alumnus. And so, you know, the idea is that she kind of has more of a vested interest in Harvard's admissions and therefore might want to take a step back in cases involving Harvard. There is a possibility that she might weigh those considerations a little bit differently on the Supreme Court. You know, it's a bigger deal if a Supreme Court justice isn't hearing a case versus an appeals court judge or a district court judge. You know, there are plenty of others to kind of step into that. Those shoes on the Supreme Court, there are only nine of them, so you take away one. That's a bigger deal. But it's not super significant because, Frankly, it's very, very, very unlikely that she would be the deciding vote in that case. So it would mean that we wouldn't get a dissent from her, but it's not like the affirmative action case was going to be turning on her vote and suddenly she's not in the mix anymore.
0: All right. So speaking broadly, one of the most frequently asked questions of Jackson from Republicans was about her judicial philosophy and whether she could describe what that was. She said she doesn't have a judicial philosophy, instead she has a judicial methodology. Is that true that she doesn't have a judicial philosophy? And if so, what's the difference? What does it mean to have a judicial methodology?
1: It's such a meaningless question at this point because, you know, all the nominees get asked about their judicial philosophy and it's usually by senators of the opposite party and the president who nominated the person who's there. And it's a way of basically often suggesting that the person is biased in some way, that they're coming in with like an ideology or a set of preconceived notions about how the world works that they're going to apply to the law. You know, Jackson, I think by saying that she had a methodology, it like almost sounded like scientific what she was describing, you know, like I look at the facts and I apply the law and it's sort of like, okay, yes, that's what judges do. What's interesting, she did talk a bit about what she thinks about the Constitution and what she thinks about textualism. So these ideas of textualism and originalism that I think tend to, you know, kind of tend to be associated with conservatives. And she said that she uses them. So in an exchange with Senator Dick Durbin, she said that when she's interpreting the Constitution, that she quote, focuses on original public meaning because I'm constrained to interpret the text. And then later, she said that she doesn't believe there's a living Constitution. She said, the Supreme Court has made clear that when you're interpreting the Constitution, you're looking at the text at the time of the founding. So... She actually said that she sort of uses these tools that have been associated with the conservative legal movement in her own work. I should say that there's no real reason why textualism and originalism have to be associated with conservatives. Those approaches can also result in liberal outcomes. So I don't think it's really that noteworthy that she uses them, but this idea that she has particular approaches to the law, that she's going to try to be neutral... Those are things that don't actually tell us that much about how she approaches her job as a judge. But I think this question is not one that is really answerable in this setting. So it kind of makes sense that she gave an answer that really doesn't tell us very much.
0: Right. You said it's not answerable in that setting, but perhaps it's answerable on this podcast. What do we know about her ideological bent?
1: It's interesting because she's been a judge for a long time. She was a district court judge. She was appointed by Obama. And then she's been an appeals court judge. But she was a district court judge for most of that time. She was just appointed to the appeals court in 2021. And district court judges, it can be kind of difficult to figure out what they think about big issues because they're constrained by multiple layers of precedent, right? So it goes the Supreme Court and then appeals courts and then district courts. And district courts are at the bottom. So they're constrained by the appeals court precedent and the Supreme Court precedent. So there really isn't a lot of room for district court judges to go out on a limb and kind of say, you know, like, this is what I think about the law. They have to apply the law as those higher courts say that they have to. And they also get a lot of cases that just are not ideological. The vast majority of the cases that come through the courts are not going to tell you much of anything about a judge's perspective on issues that senators on the Judiciary Committee want to talk about because they're the political hot thing right now. So, you know, with that caveat, I think we can very confidently predict that she will be a reliable vote with the liberals on big issues that have an ideological valence. We don't know at this point where she would fall in the spectrum. There's one metric that I looked at for a story that I wrote when she was named that suggests that she could be pretty far to the left among the liberal Democratic nominated justices. There's another one that suggests she could be closer to the center. We're not gonna get to see that until she gets on the court, but broadly speaking, she's gonna be a pretty reliable liberal. We can be pretty confident about that.
0: You know, I think sometimes we have a sense that certain nominees might be more idiosyncratic than others, and we've seen that sometimes in high-profile cases, reliable liberal or conservative justices do break with their block on the court. Is there any indication that there are areas of the law where Jackson's jurisprudence is unique?
1: Well, she's an expert on federal sentencing, and I do Don't know if that necessarily makes her perspective unique, but it makes it extremely well-informed. And that's significant because the Supreme Court decides a fair number of cases that have to do with how criminal defendants in the federal system are sentenced. So I think she's going to bring the perspective of having... Worked as a public defender, so, you know, worked on the opposite side of the courtroom from most of the people who have become judges and justices historically, from having worked on the sentencing commission and from having been a trial court judge, and that's going to bring a lot of knowledge about sentencing. I don't know if there are a whole lot of other areas where it seems like she's really, going to be idiosyncratic or stand out. And that's, again, that's pretty normal. Justices tend to carve out their own path once they're on the court and once, especially if they've been judges before, once they've been kind of freed of having to adhere to another court's precedent it can kind of take some time to figure out where they're going to land. And that's why we always, you know, even in the first few years, when we're still sort of seeing how they're starting to make their mark, we say, you know, we have to wait a little while because it it takes a couple of years for them to get comfortable.
0: So I think maybe almost to the contrary of being idiosyncratic, it's because of Jackson's work on sentencing and work as a public defender that I think liberal groups and activists were more excited about her. So maybe suggests that That's part of her record that suggests she might be more liberal, and it was also a key part of Republican questioning. And one of the most prominent parts of Republican questioning was on Jackson's record in sentencing offenders in child pornography cases. And essentially what they were saying was that she oftentimes was giving lighter sentences to the perpetrators of these crimes. Is there a way for us to look in a, in a broader sense and be able to tell, like, is Jackson, in the grand scheme of judges, lighter on these kinds of crimes?
1: No, she's not. So there are kind of two conversations happening in this hearing, there's the conversation that Jackson is trying to have, where she's talking about this consensus that's emerged that the sentencing guidelines for child pornography offenders are too onerous. And I can sort of explain a little bit more about that in a minute. And then on the other side, there's the Republican senators who are attacking her on this, who are not really trying to engage with. like the sort of the substance of of what it means to be a judge and what it means to sentence someone and what someone who has received or distributed child pornography, what sentence that person should get. It was much more of a sort of politicized, like almost keying into QAnon conspiracy theories, you know, like it was much more of a, a dog whistle type conversation.
0: Although I will say, so like at one point, for example, Ted Cruz pulls out one of those boards that you see in these kinds of hearings and goes case by case and is like, okay, so here's a case where you gave a significantly lighter sentence than was recommended in the sentencing guidelines. Are we able to piece together a general trend in that Jackson is someone who is lighter on these things or not? Was that like cherry picking data?
1: No. So what he was doing is looking at Like those are her real cases, but most judges in cases like that give sentences that are below the guidelines. And that goes back to sort of what Jackson was talking about in response to these questions, which is that when you're talking about cases involving distribution and receipt of child pornography images, the issue is that the guidelines were created at a time before the internet, when you had to actually create and distribute child pornography images by hand, which meant that the number of images that you had received or distributed was important for figuring out how severe the crime was, because like each image was a physical thing that you had to transport or pass on to someone else or have in your house. Now, it's different because you can download a folder of a thousand images with a click of a button. And so the argument is that to increase someone's sentence dramatically based on the number of images they receive or they distribute, not the number of images that they produce, that's a different conversation. But like, you know, someone downloading those images, it doesn't make as much sense. And the other thing is that the sentencing guidelines are just guidelines. Judges take all kinds of things into consideration, like the defendant's age and other circumstances. Like they're they're bringing a lot of things to each individual sentencing decision. So it's not uncommon at all for judges' sentences to deviate from the sentencing guidelines. And in this case, a report from the Sentencing Commission from 2021 said that the majority, 59% of non-production, so again, that's like not the people who are actually producing the images, child pornography offenders received a variance below the guideline range. So she's not out of the ordinary on this at all.
0: The other sort of hot button, or at least sort of highly charged, somewhat emotional line of questioning that came from Republicans was on her defense of Guantanamo Bay detainees as a public defender. What was the sort of argument there?
1: I mean, the argument was that she had defended terrorists and that she not only had defended terrorists as a public defender, but that she had later in her career gone out of her way to write in defense of detainees at Guantanamo. And I think this line of attack was pretty predictable. And basically, there's this tension when you're talking to a public defender and someone who has kind of a defense orientation, which is that in our adversarial system, people are entitled to a strong defense. And so that means that the defenders have to defend them strongly. And then later, when they are nominated to the Supreme Court, they have to explain why they were defending detainees at Guantanamo Bay.
0: Is this one of the reasons that public defenders don't usually make it to the Supreme Court? (laughs) Slash have never made it to the Supreme Court before, potentially now.
1: Well, I don't think it's necessarily because of the exchange in the hearings, but yeah, I mean, I I do think there's more of a sense that, like, prosecutors have a purer mission. You know, they're going after the bad guys, and it's really black and white, and, you know, these are the people who have the aims of justice in their sights. That was a terrible metaphor, but you know what I mean. And defenders, like, they're defending people who often have definitely committed crimes, often very serious crimes. and. That, I think, is just kind of harder to answer for in a public setting, and certainly in a political context like this, where the opposition is looking for anything in her record that can make her look bad, that's going to jump out.
0: So those were two issues that were unique to Jackson's record that Republicans probed, Of course, the usual hot button issues like the First Amendment and religious freedom, Second Amendment and gun rights, 14th Amendment and abortion came up. They were probed. As you mentioned, how much information the responses revealed was very limited. Those are issues that we always expect to come up in these hearings. Were there any issues that were sort of outside the ordinary?
1: Yeah, so i got to say, I was not expecting to hear quite so much about critical race theory in a Supreme Court nomination hearing. And I mean, you know, like, in a sense, critical race theory is a legal theory. So, you know, if you're going to talk about it anywhere, I guess there's an argument for bringing it up. Jackson has never said anything that has indicated that she uses critical race theory as like a guiding principle for the way she approaches the law. So I would say it was not super relevant. And the way that it got brought up was more in the context of education with Republican senators basically trying to say that critical race theory is taught in a private school where she serves on the board and sort of suggesting that because of that, she condones critical race theory and the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And I expected these hearings to have a potentially racist or sexist tinge to them. This was pretty blatant I don't know if this was a line of questioning that the senators would have gone down if Jackson hadn't been a Black woman. And, you know, the way that they were asking about it, I mean, it really wasn't relevant to much, except that this is an issue that's been coming up, obviously, at a bunch of different levels in politics, mainly in the States. And then she was also drawn into this debate over hands, bathroom bills. She was asked to define what a woman is. And she responded, I think, I'm not a biologist. And then that was spun as like, she refuses to say what a woman is. Which is just like, you know, these aren't questions that have anything to do with how she is going to rule as a Supreme Court justice. But I think it goes to the broader question of like, what are these hearings really about for the senators? And it's not about trying to get information out of her about her worldview or what kind of Supreme Court justice she would be. This is really an opportunity to grab the spotlight, highlight the issues that they think are politically salient, and try to paint Biden's nominee in a light that is, you know, for the Republicans, that is unfavorable for Democrats, that's favorable.
0: Yeah, that tracks. I mean, watching these hearings, I was thinking back to the 2020 Amy Coney Barrett hearings. And In those hearings, like so much of the discussion from Democrats was about a challenge to the Affordable Care Act that was headed to the Supreme Court in 2021 that Barrett would potentially be on the court to rule on. it was almost like surprising the degree to which it was all about this case, which was a challenge that most people expected to fail and indeed did fail. Amy Coney Barrett sided with six other justices on the court to rule against the challenge, basically upholding the Affordable Care Act. And the analysis at the time, we talked about this on the podcast, like, why is the only thing being discussed in this hearing an ACA case that's almost certainly going to fail? And it was like, well, Democrats thought that it was the most salient issue for voters heading into the 2020 election. So just sort of spotlight healthcare, care. And, and that's a winning issue. I'm curious, like, in the same way that that applied to the 2020 election, did it seem like there was almost one coherent line of questioning that would help us discern what Republicans think is their strongest case to the American public, maybe in a midterm year.
1: I think definitely based on this, they do think that pushing on this issue of critical race theory and education is successful for them, that it's something that's going to grab voters. Something we haven't talked about also is that in sort of attacking Jackson for being a former public defender, there was also a lot of suggestions that she would be soft on crime. Crime's not really an issue that's been coming up as much in the past few months, And I think arguably to say that a black woman like Jackson is soft on crime, that's like really more of a racist dog whistle than anything else. That's a strategy that goes back decades. And I think she went out of her way to highlight the fact that she has family who are in law enforcement, that she really thinks about people who are enforcing the law, and then also the need to make sure that people who are accused of crimes have a good defense. You know, sort of she presented that balance. But I think, you know, the idea that Biden is nominating someone to the Supreme Court who is going to let dangerous criminals out of jail, is something that Republicans really took pains to emphasize and clearly they think is politically winning for them. I don't know if there is sort of a single message that was quite as coherent as what Democrats focused on with Amy Coney Barrett. And Know as you were saying, I really thought it was weird and kind of a mistake that Democrats went in so hard on the Affordable Care Act because there was that case that was coming up. It seemed pretty unlikely that the Supreme Court was going to overturn the ACA on this case. And so it was a pretty easy way for Barrett to not do the thing that Democrats said she was going to do. And then there were all these headlines that were like, Oh, look how moderate Barrett is, and like, look how moderate this conservative block is. And it was like, no, like this was an insane case. It was really unlikely that she was gonna vote to overturn the ACA in this case. So I think the strategy of just kind of trying to vaguely tie the nominee to these broader issues that are being talked about that aren't tethered. Like there's no case about critical race theory and education that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing when Jackson joins. Like it's just sort of nebulously trying to tie her to these broader debates and conversations that are happening. And I think in some ways that's smarter politically because you don't run into this situation where, you know, you put all your eggs in the basket of saying like, look, This person is really scary because there is a case coming up where she is going to rule in a particular way, and that's why you shouldn't like her, and then she doesn't do what you say, rather than sort of more broadly throwing this into the swirling political ether, but not actually making concrete predictions or really saying anything specific about what she would actually do as a justice.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point about some of those issues that are quite unlikely to make it to the Supreme Court, at least in the form of the question that's being asked. Oftentimes, those moments serve as clips to help launch presidential campaigns. I'm sure people remember that the Judiciary Committee served as something of a proving ground for Booker, Harris, Klobuchar, all these people who would end up, of course, running for president in 2020.
1: And we saw that again... You know, we're seeing that again now. Yeah, like, is it
0: clear who's running for president from these hearings? We're seeing
1: Ted Cruz and Marsha Blackburn and Josh Hawley. Well, it's like, you could probably say six people are running for president based on these hearings. But yeah, I mean... Jackson was interrupted so much. You know, there were all of these exchanges she had with senators like Cruz and Lindsey Graham, where they would ask her a question and she would start to answer and then they would cut her off. And then they would later accuse her of having filibustered the question, which is like she she barely spoke because you were talking the whole time. And that's just what the hearings have Become And this was true of Democrats as well, that it's really more about the senators wanting to get the little clip of them going in hard on the nominee and asking the right questions and trying to pin them down rather than actually eliciting any specific response from the nominee.
0: Right, of course. And then you take that clip, you bring it to Hannity, you bring it to Maddow, and you do a little interview where you talk about why you care about this issue, even though it may never end up at the Supreme Court, et cetera. When, though, for some historical context, did these hearings become that?
1: Confirmation hearings have always been contentious. They've been around for about 100 years, and some of the early confirmation hearings were also pretty fiery. They weren't televised and you couldn't take the viral clip to Hannity in the 1930s. So I think there was less of that particular incentive to get a little soundbite out. I think in recent years, as the process of confirming Supreme Court justices has become so politicized, there has been increasingly a sense of like, we know how this is going to end. It's going to be a really close vote. If it's a Democratic nominee, the Republicans are coming in pretty much not going to vote for this person. If it's a Republican nominee, the Democrats are pretty much not going to vote for this person. And so to avoid the whole thing being an exercise in futility, this is the purpose that they serve. They serve a purpose of political theater.
0: Wasn't it only like 20 years ago that these nominees were getting nearly 100 votes. So when did that actually change? Because I have to imagine that you can't just go in with a scorched earth attitude and like try to get these people to look like demons and then vote for them.
1: In general, yes, the highly politicized vote for Supreme Court nominees is something that's just happened in the past 20, 30 years. Jeff Skelly had a good piece for the site a couple months ago where he looked at the data on this. He said that Stephen Breyer, who is the justice who's retiring and and Jackson will replace if she's confirmed, received more than 90% of votes. That's in line with about three quarters of Supreme Court nominees in U.S. history up to that point. But since then... Only one of the seven justices who have been confirmed since Breyer, and that's Chief Justice John Roberts, have received more than 69% of the Senate's votes. And Jeff wrote that Roberts is also the only one to have gotten the backing of a majority of the other party's senators. And that was almost 20 years ago. And, And this is not to say that Supreme Court nominations were never controversial in the past. You know, there certainly were exceptions, but it used to be more of a norm that senators would vote for the president's nominee. And that norm is very much gone. And I think also the tone of these hearings has really gotten quite nasty. I've talked a couple times about how much Jackson was interrupted because it was just really striking in watching it how bitter and and nasty these exchanges were. And That's after Republicans said that they promised Jackson a respectful hearing. And so other hearings in the past have been like this too, the hearings for Trump nominees. So it isn't a new thing exactly, but the tone has changed somewhat overall, and definitely the voting patterns have changed.
0: You mentioned John Roberts, and that's a good segue to talk about Jackson's popularity. So according to Gallup, Roberts was the most popular nominee to be nominated since Gallup started polling support for nominees amongst the public since 1987. According to Gallup polling out on Wednesday, Jackson is the second most popular. So 59% of Americans wanted Roberts to be approved, confirmed to the court. 58% of Americans say they would like the Senate to vote to confirm Jackson. There's other polling out there that backs up that Jackson is popular, whether it's as popular as that. We don't have the time frame to necessarily compare for all polling. Why is Jackson so popular?
1: I take this polling with a little bit of a grain of salt. I'm looking at it and Gallup says that only 12% of respondents had no opinion. And that seems very low to me. I mean, we're a country where... A lot of people can't name a single Supreme Court justice, so I'm a little bit skeptical that people are that tuned into this. And this is actually part of the reason that I'm a little bit surprised that these hearings have turned so contentious. Like, this is not a big deal seat. You know, it is a big deal that Jackson is the first Black woman to be on the Supreme Court. That's a huge deal. But ideologically, she's a Democratic nominee replacing a Democratic nominee. Conservatives still have a strong majority on the court. Nothing is going to change in terms of the outcomes on the big cases that people are likely to be following, which is really just like one to two cases a year. So I think part of it is just that this is not like things were in 2020 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the lead up to the election and Republicans rushed through Amy Coney Barrett and Democrats were pointing to it and saying, look, this is hypocrisy. They wouldn't confirm Obama's nominee in an election year. But now here they are closer to an election, rushing their own nominee through. And it was getting tons of coverage. And it was like this big political thing. I think this seat just doesn't carry the same weight and so that's potentially why maybe more people, like you can imagine, in the middle saying, yeah, sure, yeah, she should be on the Supreme Court. But I also should say the fact that she is a Black woman, I think a lot of people of color or women there's a long history of them not being represented on this court. And even though we do have more female justices now, Jackson will just be one of a few Black justices on the Supreme Court. And so that's a big deal too. And I think people are generally in favor of having more representation on the court. And so I can imagine that that is part of it too, that she's not super controversial. She's pretty mainstream. You know, we've come back to this a few times. Like there just like isn't a lot in her record that stands out as putting her outside the mainstream of what Americans would think is appropriate for a Supreme Court justice, and she's bringing this new perspective and background to the court that we haven't had before. So, I think all of that is probably playing in.
0: Yeah, there was an interesting moment where Senator Patrick Leahy Who's a Democrat asked Jackson to explain what diverse racial or gender representation means on the court, why it matters. And she tied it really to sort of how the rule of law works. And I'm paraphrasing here, but she said that basically the court relies on the faith and trust of the general public. It doesn't really have much of an enforcement mechanism beyond that. You know, there's no police force or military that the Supreme Court has control over. And she said that a more diverse court is more liable to engender trust in the institution of the judiciary across all walks of life because people will see themselves represented and and therefore have more faith in the institution. And there's all sort of political science that actually backs this up, that when people see themselves represented in government, they're more liable to trust it. And so she actually said, as a result, having a more diverse court makes the rule of law stronger. I thought that was a uh, really interesting way to put it on, on her part, because she was asked to basically address the history of her nomination directly. So when it all comes down to it, what do we expect to happen next? Will she be confirmed? I think the answer is probably yes. Will she yeah. receive Republican votes? I'm looking at you, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins.
1: Yeah, it's not going to be Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham voted for the DC circuit. I do not see him voting for her after this. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins decides that this is kind of a low-cost opportunity for a bipartisan vote. I don't think she's going to get more than two Republican votes. So it's, you know, it's going to be a narrow vote, but barring something crazy happening in the last few hours of the hearings today and tomorrow. You know, I think Democrats are on track with their goal of having her confirmed by the beginning of April.
0: So wrapping up here, next session is when she would be seated on the bench if she's confirmed. Breyer is going to be sitting through the rest of this current term, which is also itself full of hot bun issues. But what are some of the issues that we already know are going to be considered next term when Jackson is likely sitting on the court.
1: Yeah, the fact that we're already talking about the hot-button issues that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing next fall and it's March like, is giving me a little bit of heartburn, so um, thank you I, I mean, for
0: we can, talk, we can really talk about the ones like, left this session if you want to. Yeah, I know, I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's all too much. But yeah, so there's a big affirmative action case on the docket. Jackson has said she'll recuse herself from that case. Again, as I said earlier, I don't think there is much of a question about whether she would be the deciding vote if she were hearing that case and weighing in. This case seems like a pretty obvious vehicle for the conservatives to take aim at affirmative action. So I think obviously, like we haven't, the case hasn't been argued, like caveat, 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 but this seems like where it's going to be a situation where it's going to be conservatives versus liberals conservatives have been gunning for affirmative action for a long time. We also have a case coming up on the Voting Rights Act. This is related to an Alabama redistricting case that came up before the Supreme Court through the shadow docket earlier in the year, and it has to do with whether Alabama had drawn enough majority-minority districts under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And at that point earlier this year, the Supreme Court didn't sort of come down on like the meat of the issue because they wanted to hear it more fully. Again, it's hard to predict. I think this could be a case that is not good for Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act but we'll have to see how that pans out. And then it's possible that there will be other redistricting cases that come up from the lower courts and end up in the Supreme Court. There have been questions about the so-called independent state legislature doctrine that could end up on the Supreme Court's docket in the fall. So, you know, and that's just the cases we know about in March. So she's definitely going to be jumping in to some of the biggest issues in American politics in her first few months on the job. It's not gonna be a sleepy first term for her.
0: And before we go, just because you primed me, remind me what cases we're still waiting for opinions on this summer?
1: Uh, How much time do you have? (laughs) <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> we got I, in thirty seconds. We'll really review them when the opinions come down.
1: This is like you're you're de- sorry, listeners. You are for sure not done with me or Supreme Court podcasts for the next few months. No, we're waiting for a big case on abortion. Could see Roe versus Wade overturned. Could see it limited significantly. Big gun rights case, um, a couple of cases that are really big that have to do with the administrative state. And I will not, I promise, Galen, I will not go into why people should care about that right now, but they're big cases. And then some religious liberty cases, a big school prayer case. And there are even more, but those are, you know, if you had to make me list five, those are the ones I would go for. So there are going to be some fireworks. It's a big last term for Stephen Breyer.
0: All right, well... We will talk about it when it happens. Thank you so much for an hour, Amelia. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538com You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Music